0: From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Los Angeles County continues as the state's hotspot for COVID-19 cases. Nearly half of California's confirmed cases have been here. Nevertheless, local hospitals have plenty of capacity and hospitalizations have held steady. We'll look at how our better understanding of COVID-19 spread is informing small steps in reopening some businesses. We'll also ask AirTalk listeners to share what they saw at their local recreational areas over Mother's Day weekend. That includes beaches, hiking trails, and the streets of LA. It all comes your way on this morning's Air Talk here on 89.3 KPCC. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you had a very nice Mother's Day weekend. Even if you didn't get a chance to visit in person with your mother, I hope that if she's living, it was a good chance for you to connect with her in some way. And if your mother isn't still with us, that you had a chance to think about her over the weekend as well and influence on your life. Coming up a little bit later, we'll talk about how Angelinos observed Mother's Day, particularly getting out over the weekend, where many trails reopened, beaches were available in some cases for limited hours for active use, uh, and to also get the sense from AirTalk listeners what they saw of fellow Angelinos getting out and around in the world. But we begin with our daily update on the medical side of COVID-19 from Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, Pasadena Infectious Disease Specialist. Dr. Kimberly Schreiner joins us once more. Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much for being with us. I hope you had a nice weekend. I did, Larry, and thank you very much for allowing me to be on the show again. Appreciate it. Let's start, first of all, with Los Angeles County being the hotspot for California. Nearly half of the cases in the state are from the county. Now, it's the most populous, of course, but still disproportionate number of cases here. To what do you attribute that?
1: Well, I think I think the first thing that you said is probably the most important factor is that it's the most populous county. Um, I also think that there's probably, you know, it's there's we have a very large, um, lower-income population, and I think that that is a factor. We know that the poor are disproportionately affected by this disease. They have to continue working. They often live in congregate, living in, in homes with more than one person, and so it's very hard for them to, to do social distancing. So that's certainly a factor as well. Um, but I think that it's probably more a function of the fact that we just are the largest county, uh, and uh, and that's playing a role. But I do think that that some of our socioeconomic situations, we have a very large homeless population. That's a hard population to assess how much that's driving this pandemic. But we certainly know that um, that people of color are more are disproportionately affected by this, and that may be a factor as well.
0: Uh, also fascinating that statewide, just under half of the state's fatalities from COVID-19 are in either skilled nursing or assisted living facilities. I was looking at Pasadena's rate. It's overwhelmingly from institutional senior care. Um, Clearly, this is the place where the risk is greatest, along with other institutional settings like prisons. We're seeing a high rate of spread uh, or, you know, in the workplace, some of those Midwestern packing houses where people are on top of each other doing their work.
1: Yeah, and that's just the simple fact of the virus, Larry. Is that it likes to it likes to go from one person to another if the host is within six feet um, and there's lots of hosts available, it will be transmitted very quickly, and that's what we're seeing in in our highly vulnerable populations, uh, in skilled nursing facilities and in, in correctional institutions and. Uh, employ, employment areas where they are, there's a lot of uh, congregant sort of congregations of people. So I think that those are. It's just it's a very simple fact that the virus can is a highly contagious pathogen, and if it has the opportunity, it will spread very quickly from one person to another. Uh, Pasadena has a largely older population in general, um, and we certainly have a, a large number of skilled nursing and assisted living facilities, and they have been hit very very hard by this.
0: What are the best practices for those facilities? I know, for example, that um, the, the standard is to not allow anyone in, family members or or friends to visit. Uh, I have a friend who is in a um, nursing facility. I've been able to see her for weeks. And, but you still do have staff members who need to go home and uh, may be in contact with their family members, then coming back to the facility. So what are ways that those um, institutional settings can better guard against spread
1: well um one of the things that we 've been doing here, and thanks to the really hard work of dr. Yango who's our public health officer in Pasadena, and uh, the hospital helped a great deal with sort of facilitating the distribution of ppe and i I want to give special credit to Dr. Silvia Preciata, who 's one of our local internists who and dr. atwafa al Rashid, both of whom really reached out to skilled nursing facilities and and spent a lot of time teaching them how to use PPEs and providing PPEs, and that has been a huge impact in helping the healthcare workers that are working in there, who are so essential and really do wonderful work. And the, the uh, residents are so dependent on them, but they needed the, the healthcare workers need to be protected with PPE. They need to know about hand washing. They need to know about social distancing. And uh, many individuals uh, in the community, in addition to the hospital and the health department, have really. Made a heroic effort to go into the high, especially the highly impacted skilled nursing facilities and teach that. And we already, already now can see a difference. So it's really strong work that they did.
0: And are any of them doing screening of employees when they come back to work, to your knowledge, checking their temperatures, things like that?
1: Yeah, I think there's temperature checks now being instituted. And um, many of those places they have done fairly extensive uh, testing. Um, It's just a very difficult situation because many of the residents, as you know, may have neurocognitive issues with some dementia and so forth. So often they're very um, mobile. They move around a lot. They're difficult to, uh, you know, you can't, sometimes it's hard to explain to the the residents uh, why they need to wear a mask or they don't wear a mask, and they move from different places from room to room. So it's a pretty hard situation to work in. And, um, you know, traditionally skilled nursing facilities have been understaffed. Uh, and it's been a real burden for uh, for individuals that are trying to take care of the patients there. So um, I have to say that I think that those healthcare workers have really been on the front lines and have made uh, huge sacrifices to try to provide the best care. But they needed a lot of help, and the hospital and uh, the internists and the health department stepped up and have done it.
0: Apparently, um, there's looked look nationally at um, multi-phase reopening of skilled nursing facilities. But, you know, the question is because of that vulnerable population that you're talking about, you know, when, when that could happen. But perhaps there could be some sort of barriers that family members would sit or stand behind. Do you think that there are ways that you could sequester family members, but they could still visit?
1: yeah I think there's going to there's just going to have to be an awful lot of rethinking about how we take care of our elderly or how we take care of um, people that are in correctional institutions, or frankly any kind of institution where there's a lot of uh, people living together or in factories. And I think we have to space things out just like in colleges and and universities. I think that's a, it's a really big challenge, and I think we have to uh, kind of think outside the box in terms of social distancing and frequent testing. In isolating people that uh, that exhibits uh, signs and symptoms uh, and then testing all of their contacts and we and we 're unfortunately going to have to do this for many many weeks, if not months, because we are still very much in the midst of this and I, I think the lovely weather and the the outdoors has really been beckoning people, and I think there 's sort of a a little bit of complacency that I worry about in terms of where we really are with this. We still are very much on this plateau. We're not really increasing a little tiny bit in L.A. County, but not dramatically, but we're still on this plateau, and we're not in a place where we're going over and seeing a decrease in the number of cases and deaths, and that's what you really need to see to begin to open up society. So I think a lot of these places are going to have to sort of restructure how they do things, and and you have to have family be able to visit their loved ones. That, That just is such an important part of Care for those individuals, and um, you know whether that's social distancing, whether that's providing PPE for everybody who comes in, whether that's doing screening for people who come in. I think those are all modalities that
0: can. Can be utilized. It, it's notable to me, though, Dr. Schreiner, that when you look at European countries that are starting to uh, rather gingerly lift their restrictions, I'm thinking of Italy and France, uh, UK not doing it yet. It seems like once they hit that two month mark or so, that they really feel that pressure to start sort of reopening. That you go past that as, as you know, we're reaching that that point now. Very difficult psychologically to keep people locked down.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that's what you're seeing, Larry. I think uh, you know it's uh, you can't blame people for wanting to to get out of the house and to start doing some things. But you know, the, this virus doesn't care, and it, it it's it is still very much in our population. And I I, I think that uh, there's been some uh, sort of scary things that have come out of South Korea and uh, in Germany where they opened things up a little bit and they had a surge in cases and they had to close things back down again. China, the same thing, some double digit uh, uh, production of virus. So I, I think that that's something we have to monitor super carefully. And it's just a very, uh, very tenuous time. But it is always balanced against both the economic situation and also the social situation. Human
0: beings are yeah. very
1: social animals and this is not normal behavior,
0: and it's stressful to uh, to be out of circulation. I wonder, though, when um, as things gradually reopen with new safety procedures, when we do see hotspots developing, if if officials can respond very quickly to that and get public and business cooperation would there be the ability to tamp it down quickly so it doesn't spread more widely if you have contact tracing and then you don't have to shut everything back down but specific geographic areas.
1: Yeah, and that's what we hope we can do and that's and I and I think most most employers and most customers want that to happen. I think everybody truthfully is very frightened, which they should be. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of make a lot of noise and, and, and seem rather brazen about things. But the truth is, I think most people are are still very, very uh, frightened by this. And that's an, that's actually a good response that will kind of maintain social distancing. So I think that if we identify hotspots and move in quickly sort of a SWAT team sort of thing approach with, uh, with public health officers, of which there's a huge shortage, we need to have a public health officer core, basically – Uh, to do that, then I think that's reasonable. Uh, The only problem is there's a case of um, the situation in South Korea where one individual who was infected went to about five nightclubs um, over the last couple weeks, I guess, and uh, over a weekend, actually, he went to five different nightclubs and Um, 1,500 people, contacts, were probably uh, exposed to him. And then, of course, all those people had contacts. So you can see how quickly the virus can spread, and it it sometimes can just overwhelm the ability to trace all of the potential
0: contacts. Speaking of that kind of a spread, Pasadena's Public Health Department reported late last week about a birthday party that took place after the stay-at-home order was issued and the order not to get together in groups. And the birthday party was held, and apparently people were not covering their faces. Um, They were physically uh, touching each other, hugging each other. And that apparently one of the attendees was sick with visible symptoms, including coughing and and sneezing, and was joking about having COVID-19. In fact, she did, and there have been multiple positive tests coming out of that birthday meeting. Apparently, she was not familiar with the case of the Utah Jazz's Rudy Gobert, who also was joking about having COVID-19 and touching reporters, uh, tape recorders, and things like that, only to, in fact, test positive. Uh, And he uh, issued a a blanket apology for his actions, which he called immature. Um, So, Dr. Schreiner, there still seem to be people who who are really in denial about the, the urge to get together outweighs the ability to think through this logically.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, again, I think this is, it, it's just such a difficult uh, issue because it really is something that's a behavioral sort of thing. And denial is a very powerful tool for dealing with difficult situations. Everybody wants life to be normal. They want, they want life to be what it was like only, you know, four months ago. I think the the the... Rapidity of which this thing hit also is, an, you know, just sort of went from everybody was living their normal lives to wham, we were all of a sudden sequestered, and and everything that we like to do, you know, ended. So I think that, you know, it, something as innocent as a birthday party, you know, which is a happy thing and a good thing, and and touching people and hugging people and people that you love, that's a wonderful thing. But if you're sick, that is not the time to to attend one of those. And I think that it just shows the seriousness, and I'm glad they put it in the paper so people can see, because I think there's still a tendency for everybody to kind of gather together, especially in families where they know each other. But you really have to be very clear that if somebody isn't feeling well, that it very well could be coronavirus. It's the predominant virus that's circulating right now. There aren't a lot of other respiratory viruses at this moment that are causing as much, certainly none, that are causing as many problems as this one. But it is definitely a predominant upper respiratory virus right now. So it's just so important that people who are feeling ill, please stay home and don't have contact with people.
0: We're talking with Huntington Hospital Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. If you have questions for her, we're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722 or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. Um Peer pressure is another factor here, talking about these social considerations. One of our AirTalk producers was sharing in our morning telephone meeting about, um, you know, family members kind of pressuring to get together uh, for special occasions and that then it can be difficult, um, you know, for someone to be willing to be the outlier and to not take part.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a that's a really important thing, and you know, just like in society, there are pressures within families in terms of how you behave, and you know, oh, you're being an alarmist, or uh, oh, you're being too cautious, or and so forth. You know, it's okay to be too cautious and to be an alarmist right now. This is a very serious infection, and it it can uh, cause tremendous illness, it, uh, and of course, can kill people quite easily and um and i think that it's just so important for people to remember that this is really not influenza. Uh, yes, influenza has a very high, you know, can have a fairly significant mortality too, but this one certainly outstrips influenza in terms of its contagiousness and its uh, overall effect on the on the immune system and the mortality associated with that.
0: You know, i have to say for myself just how i personally think about it, what i find more frightening and concerning then the lethality of it, which, you know, that kind of speaks for itself. None of us want to die. But for those that recover so much of what appears to be ongoing damage to the lungs, immune system compromise, other, other lasting negative effects, for some reason that hits me even harder. So it's like you can go through this, you can survive it, but you may not be the same. Yeah, we don't we
1: don't know what that legacy is sort of going to be. I think certainly people that were severely ill um, and recovered uh, so, do seem to have some um, persisting symptomatology and perhaps some permanent damage. But we don't really know. Uh, you know, does that last six months? Does that last six years? Or is it a lifelong sort of thing? And I think. Each day that goes by in dealing with this infection, we learn more about it. It is a very aggressive pathogen. It, it just totally takes over the immune system and causes this really inappropriate immune response. You see it in, in the multisystem organ damage that happens. It's not just the lungs. It's the heart. It can be the kidneys. It can be the brain. It can be the GI tract, and it certainly affects the immune system. Um, Kawasaki's disease, which we're seeing in young, very young children, uh, not an uncommon thing from other kinds of viruses but particularly severe with this virus with a very high mortality and that all speaks to just how much it disrupts our normal response to an infection and uh, stimulates all these terrible chemicals that cause all this damage so it's going to be interesting to see how much of that is permanent you know younger people who get this even people who are severely ill maybe even on a ventilator they may not have a long a lot of long term sequelae from this Uh, But older people, there may still be some ongoing problems down the road, and and that can happen with other viral infections as well.
0: Well, and I guess I think of the Spanish flu of 1918, when so many, you know, younger people did get that and had lasting effects for decades afterwards. So if this is at all similar to that, um, certainly cause for concern.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. More aggressive virus. Well, I'm sorry. What was that?
1: I think this is a much more aggressive virus, truthfully, wow. than than influenza in just terms of its ability to cause multi-system organ problems. So.
0: We'll continue with Huntington Hospital Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Back in one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. It's our daily COVID 19 medical update. We have a noted health professional with us, typically a physician, sometimes an epidemiologist. To join us today, our guest is physician and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner of Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. And we have actually a Huntington-specific question from Christopher in Pasadena. It says, elective surgeries have been opened up, uh, at least to some extent, at Huntington Hospital. Christopher, also other local hospitals, have done the same. Uh, he asks if Dr. Schreiner knows about the timeline for fully opening up to elective surgeries like hernia repair he's wondering about. Dr. Schreiner, do you know a timeline for that? Well, we're working
1: on that right now, Larry. We're beginning to have a few elective surgeries this week. And by elective, these are often surgeries that are uh, weren't urgent, uh, but uh, probably couldn't be postponed any longer. So, uh, you know, while we were really sequestered and the hospital was in, in surge mode trying to deal with the uh, the pandemic part of things, you know, we really canceled almost all surgeries except for absolutely life-threatening things that needed required, you know, that were life-saving surgeries. But um, so there's quite a few surgeries, including, you know, some cardiac surgeries um, uh, and uh, more uh, significant abdominal surgeries that we're trying to get on the books now so they can be taken care of. Um, and then uh, so I think elective surgeries like a hernia repair and so forth down the road, that probably will be in a few months Um, uh, but we are beginning to open it up. Now, that has to be measured against how things are going with the virus. If we start seeing a lot more cases of viral infections with coronavirus, then we may have to once again back off on the elective surgeries because we don't want the hospital to get overwhelmed. So it's a very delicate dance that we to do in the next few weeks.
0: But you need the revenue from the scheduled surgeries, elective surgeries, right? Because that's what pays the bills.
1: Indeed, yes. Um, But our priority at at our hospital and certainly many hospitals is, is, you know, even though that's an important thing, that is not our priority. Our priority is the safety and care of our patients. And we want to make sure that we can handle the volume and take good care of both patients who have coronavirus and also the patients that are coming in for surgeries. But um, I think that it will... You know, it certainly is opening up in the next couple of weeks, so people should be able to get their surgeries scheduled if they like. It's interesting. A lot of people are not too eager to come to the hospital, and that's an understandable reaction as well. So many people are kind of trying to put that off for a little bit.
0: Yeah, what is your ER looking um, kind of sparse as a result? Because we're hearing from hospitals all around the area that, that people are just trying to avoid going to the emergency room as much as they can.
1: I think it's not. I mean, our ER is never sparse, uh, but it's it's definitely um, slowed down a little bit right now. Um, but we have spurts of things, and we're beginning to see a few more summer-associated things. You know, certainly there's a little more trauma that comes through Huntington as a trauma center, of course, uh, and uh, some other summer illnesses, typhus, and a few other things that have begun to circulate around this time as well. So uh, it's still fairly brisk down there, um, but it's definitely. I think a lot of people are. And perhaps appropriately trying to not use the emergency room as a primary care location because of, of the risk of infection. And we would encourage people to, to try to stay away from the emergency room if possible.
0: We have a couple of COVID-19 related um news items that have just moved. The Los Angeles Unified School District has just announced its summer school program will begin on June 24th. The summer program will be online, of course, because of the pandemic. Uh, And um, Superintendent Austin Buettner uh, says um, there'll be some new classes that are going to be offered during the summer term and uh, additional computers being offered to students. So again, the L.A. Unified Summer Class Session begins on June 24th. The other um, COVID-19-related news that we have for you, L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva says more than 4,500 inmates are currently in quarantine in Los Angeles County uh, as a result of COVID-19. That's nearly 40% of the county's current jail population. Now, that doesn't mean that they've tested positive, but they are being quarantined out of concerns that they have been exposed to COVID-19. So uh, some hard numbers coming from the sheriff. Dr. Schreiner, your, your thoughts?
1: Well, those are two really big tasks. The first is how do we how do we open schools? How do we how do we provide education? And I have several good friends of mine that are school teachers, many of whom are in the LA Unified District and and they just really think that especially for lower income families that that the school situation is really going to take its toll on these kids and that's that's a that's a legacy we don't want to have. We want to be able to make sure that everybody gets through this and and doesn't suffer the consequences. And so but it's a very tricky thing on how do you open up schools in a way that are effective. You know, virtual education is great, but it's not the same as having a dedicated teacher in a room interacting with the students. So I think that that, that's going to be a very, very complicated thing. Uh, The problem in the correctional institutions, you know, we've had other kinds of pandemics. There's a very high incidence of HIV in many correctional areas, uh, hepatitis of course. And so, um, but I think it's going to be a real challenge to try to test uh, uh, residents and uh, get them isolated, and then uh, uh, provide care if they need it. Uh, and uh, you know, it's certainly something that's going to be a challenge when you have to also keep them in a in a congregate phys- facility uh, because of uh, you know they're incarcerated. So it's very very challenging. I think you know, you just see this over and over again, where there doesn't matter what the circumstances are when there's lots of people living together. It's just a perfect place for the virus to spread quickly.
0: Yeah, I think I was seeing up at Lompoc at the correctional facility, there, something like 70% um, dealing with COVID-19. And of course, Terminal Island, the federal prison um, in the harbor of Los Angeles dealing with a huge raid. And we have many listeners at Terminal Island and just want to no, we are thinking about uh, those of you that are there, and, and wish you all the best for your recovery. Uh, Jan in City of Orange says, "I'm a healthcare worker. We've been reusing N95 masks during our shifts because we don't have enough that we can change them out. How sanitary is this when we're visiting different patients?"
1: Well, uh, one thing that you can do, Jan, is if you have if you have more surgical masks, is you can wear the N95 underneath it and then change out a surgical mask or a cloth mask on top. and that So the N95 stays relatively clean, and uh, the surgical mask is the one that's contaminated. That's one method of doing it. Um, uh, taking the mask off between patients and storing it as safely as you can in the paper bag is another technique. It's awfully difficult to get them off, though, without touching a contaminated surface. So um, it's a very big problem still. I mean, we do have more PPE than we did two months ago, but... This thing is going to last a while, and we need to have uh, PPE throughout the whole course of this, not only for hospitals but for skilled nursing facilities and for the general public. And so, it's it really is going to be a challenge. And I think manufacturing this is a this is an area where we really need to ramp up production in our own country of appropriate personal protective equipment.
0: Margie and Irvine says I went to a drive-by birthday party over the weekend. When people started coming, they stood on the driveway or the edge of the sidewalk. Although no one was showing symptoms, one of the other guests uh, leaned in and hugged me. Should I now isolate myself? Margie in Irvine, Dr. Schreiner.
1: Well, um, hopefully that person did not have coronavirus. um, And you might contact that person if you happen to know who they are and ask, are you feeling okay? Were you sick? Uh, So I think the likelihood that you have been exposed to the virus is pretty small. But you might also just let people know that right now, unfortunately, that's not something that we recommend doing. Um, You know, a simple hug uh, where there's not a lot of transfer of mucus or whatever is probably fairly safe um, as long as that person wasn't actively infected and they didn't spend a great deal of time. Some Some of this is dependent on how much time a person is in an area where there is virus. It also may be related to the amount of virus that you're exposed to. And there was a pretty horrific and sad article about a nurse in Orange County, I believe it was, that perform CPR on a patient, and she died 14 days later. And she probably was exposed to a very high viral load because that patient was very sick when, when he uh, had a cardiac arrest. So um, so that those are very important factors in terms of the infectivity of the virus. But I think a, a relatively quick, benign hug that where there's not a lot of exchange of mucus or whatever, I think that's probably fairly safe. But I would contact that person, make sure they're feeling okay.
0: Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital Infectious Disease Specialist with us. So, I'd like to hear from you if you were... Out over the weekend and enjoying a public recreational space, whether the beach for active use, whether you were hiking over the weekend, what you saw in the way of people going back into spaces that have been closed for a while, and whether you saw them keeping their distance, whether you saw them with any face coverings or not, we're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. If you celebrated Mother's Day yesterday, how did you do it to keep yourself safe? Uh, Did you keep uh, mom at a significant distance and everyone covered? Uh, Did you get together within the same physical space? Did you do it via Zoom or other way of electronically catching up with family members? 866 893-KPCC-866-893-5722. You can also contribute uh, your thoughts by tweeting at Airtalk, or you can message us on the Airtalk Facebook page. Um, And if you were invited to a get-together, physical same-place party, um, Did you turn it down and, and then have to wrestle with your decision about that? And did you feel pressured to attend 866-893-5722 or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org? Dr. Schreider, I don't know if it's easier for you because everybody in your world knows what you do and how your life has been turned upside down by COVID-19. Um, so do you avoid a lot of this pressure as a result?
1: No, I'm under the same pressure that everybody else is. I mean, and, and I certainly feel it. I, I, you know, would like to spend more time. I do some music with some friends of mine. We, we've co- sort of set up a situation where we're spread out about ten feet apart on a lawn, and we do our little music sessions. So we have no contact with each other. Um, I think that uh, you know, it, it is. It affects everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a physician or not. And I think that. Um it's just important people want to be together they want to communicate they want to hear what's going on and and you have to do it in a safe way stay just stay more than 6 feet apart wear a mask if you're going to be closer a friend of mine was on a walk yesterday and and someone had hired a little mariachi band for a mother's day and the mariachi players were all wearing masks. I <laughs> love it. Always. <Either> so.
0: <laughs> Hopefully, they were decorative and something that went with their uh, clothing. <laughs> That'd be perfect. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, uh, what instrument do you play, Dr. Schreider?
1: I play uh, classical guitar. But this is, our little group is a kind of Irish group. We do we have a dulcimer player and a great fiddle player and great mandolin player. The dulcimer player is also the mandolin player, and I. I plunk along on the guitar,
0: so. And with pubs closed, perfect. You use the uh, lawn instead. Uh, Forget. Yeah. Yeah,
1: we're not quite pub ready. I
0: think. Uh, okay, not ready for pub time. All right, well, let's uh, let's talk with John in West Hollywood. John, what was your experience over the weekend?
2: Hey, Larry, I was able to uh, visit a park that has been closed since March, and just the ability to spread a blanket out in a little field and and bring a little picnic along felt like such a blessing. And I was also really happy to see the handful of other people there were keeping distance, all had masks. It, was, it all seemed very safe.
0: And it, isn't it funny, John, how you know, something that you would have done that in the past thought, oh, it's nice, but how you savor it in such a different way when it, when it seems so much rarer?
2: So right. I couldn't I couldn't get enough of that feeling this weekend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You really appreciate something as simple as being able to go to the park, put down a blanket and just sit there uh, and have that peace. John, thank you so much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, KPECC.org. Jamie in Palm Springs. What was your weekend like? What did you do?
3: Hi there. Uh, I came out from Palm Springs, Orange County, to spend uh, time with my daughter and my grandson that I haven't seen since the beginning of the pandemic. And we did uh, backyard, um, did social distancing, um, masks, and we actually got everybody got masks for gifts. And um, I brought my own food. I brought my own towel. I brought my own towels. And I took my grandson to the beach in a in my son-in-law's car, which they wiped down, so my so my grandson could sit six feet behind, you know,
0: because it's a big yeah.
3: car. So I parked back their car, and we went to we ended up at a beach that was not bad. My grandson went surfing, and I just sat on the beach, and uh, there was no issues there. But I had I had gone past Huntington Beach, and it was crazy because there were people out protesting and it just seemed like nobody had masks on and I was and I'm like in quiet Palm Springs during the summer and I'm like this is crazy yeah I, I just felt like it felt like it was out of control
0: but but it sounds like you had a nice a nice time with your grandson at the beach
3: and my daughter yes
0: and so your daughter yeah
3: just, we, we did this
0: we did it right that's great so we, so it's a nice Mother's and Grandmother's Day. That that sounds perfect. Jamie, thanks very much. Dr. Schreiner, your thoughts on, it sounds like they uh, tried to take step by step all those precautions.
1: Yeah, I, I really think people are making a big effort to be to be considerate. And, you know, the, sometimes the media sort of focuses on all the negativity stuff. But my experience, especially, you know, when I am out walking my dog or uh, when you see areas, people are really trying to be very respectful and, and attentive. There's, there's, you know, as they sometimes they get enthusiastic and they start getting too close or something, but for the most part, I think people are trying to to really uh, observe appropriate behaviour because I think they are frightened and they know that this is a very real risk to other people. And you would feel terrible if you infected somebody else, especially if it was a family member. So there are ways of of dealing with this. Some of them are creative. I think this might be the return of the drive-in movie theatre
0: which which would be fine with me. Go (laughs) Mission Tiki Drive-In in in Montclair and the other places that still have their uh, screens that are going. Uh, Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much. Really appreciate your talking with us about COVID-19 on the medical side and the social side. We're going to continue with listener questions, what you experienced out in the world this weekend, but Dr. Schreiner needs to get back to her patients. Thank you so much, doctor. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Larry. Thank Thank you. Huntington hospital infectious disease specialist Dr. Kimberly Schreiner but please i talk with you about your experiences being out on the trails at the beach at parks or getting together with your mom your grandma your kids your grandkids what was it like over this weekend Mother's Day weekend known for socializing 866 8935722 back in 90 seconds The inimitable little Richard, who died Saturday at the age of 87, described himself as the king and queen of rock and roll. A huge personality who also went back and forth between rock and roll and gospel music, carried a Bible with him at all times and quoted from the Bible, and yet toured the world playing rock and roll. He had nine uh, top 40 hits just from early 1956 to the middle of 1958. We'll hear a few more of them over the course of today's Air Talk. But a huge influence on so many other artists. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, who played in his band, said he wanted to play guitar like like Little Richard sang. Uh, just so much, uh, particularly in the style that he employed. And, of course, the wearing of heavy makeup and the uh, sort of... Um, ambiguity, sexual ambiguity in his performances, uh, a, a huge influence on other artists like Prince who would follow him. James Brown also called him a huge musical influence little richard uh, died of bone cancer uh, on saturday at the age of 87 you're listening to Air talk on 89.3 KPECC and we're talking about what your weekend experience was like if you were out in the world or getting together with family members virtually or in person let's talk with joe in santa barbara you're on air talk
4: Thank you, uh, we had two events come up on Mother's Day. We uh, went out for the first time to meet our friends. was the first time in the public. We went down to Mission Santa Barbara, and there were a lot of people there and there weren't a lot of masks and that that park was uh there's a rose garden that wasn't necessarily open to the public and so um we didn't meet them there we went to a smaller park and sat apart and had our meeting and the rangers came and i think shut down the park in front of the mission wow. um the other issue that came up for us is on mother's day when both of my daughters had came down from san francisco and were living with us and one is going back to san francisco so she spent the last 4 days with her boyfriend in town and then wanted to come back and be with us for a couple of days before she finally moved back and we're stuck in this Dilemma of well, you've been out now, and maybe it's not wise that you come back in for a couple of days. Yeah, we don't know the mechanics of how you go about doing
0: that. Yeah, I mean it's so difficult because you don't know, um, you know how how did she engage distancing with a boyfriend, probably not. What were his contacts? Who have, you know it's it's that whole contact tracing thing. And you're you, Joe, you're trying to figure out just you know, with a family member, well, what what are the different contacts that took place and what degree of vulnerability do you face based on what your your daughter's experience was? And I understand that I mean, that's a really difficult thing to do. so, you know, you could tell her to quarantine herself for a couple weeks after being with her boyfriend, but then where would she go while she does that?
4: Yeah, and so that's really a dilemma. So we ultimately sadly decided that it's not worth you to be here for two or three days before you head back north Um, as much as we wanted to be with you. The dilemma is that we walk around as people thinking that, well, I just want to be normal and act normally, but there's this invisible protocol that needs to be you need to remind yourself of all the time.
0: All the time and those extended who had contact with whom. And it's, it's' it's kind of crazy making jokes particularly because our information is is so incomplete on that kind of thing. How did your daughter take your decision? Was she hurt by it or did she understand?
4: She was. I mean, my other daughter, My younger daughter is very strict about, look, you really can't mess with this protocol, even though you want to be close, you you want to hug and you can't. Um, So that was very difficult. And at the end of the day, it was like, well, we just have to suck this up because the right we know what the right thing to do is not take that chance. And they're more worried about us. We're in our late 60s and they don't want us to be. Uh, challenged in any way.
0: Yeah, understandably. Joe, thank you so much. You know, I, you're a microcosm of so many families dealing with uh, almost exactly the scenario that you described. I'm sure their listeners just nodding right now. Yep, yep. Dealing with the same thing, 866-893-KPECC, the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. You can tweet at Airtalk or you can comment or post on the uh, Airtalk Facebook page. Uh, Allison in Echo Park says, I went hiking in lesion Park. Half the people weren't wearing masks and not keeping distance. Anywhere there's been space for people to spread out, I don't have an issue. But the trails in Elysian are so narrow, you can't physically distance if you want to. I was also surprised by the lack of signage directing people to wear masks and to physically distance. That's from Allison in Echo Park about her experience uh, in Elysian Park. Josh in Newport Beach says, my wife and I had to run an errand. We swung by Hermosa Beach, noticed maybe only one in 10 people were wearing masks. I think when people see others aren't wearing masks, they tend to take off theirs as well. I don't think people are taking this as seriously as they should. That's uh, Josh in Newport Beach. Let's talk with Christine, joining us from Chatsworth. Christine, what did you do for Mother's Day yesterday?
5: hi good um good afternoon. I mean, good morning, Larry. How are you? Good we great, We did great, so um usually last year, um every year we spend at my backyard We're about like sixteen or more. But this time, my brother arrived from Las Vegas, and um I have four kids, so we spend in the backyard. We played bingo there, and together with my sisters in Sacramento, they were in Sacramento, and then my niece Lorraine. In uh, La Crescenta, we did great because we played bingo through iMessenger. So uh, whoever won, we tried to do it through Zill, uh, uh, transfer the money. So <laughs> we did great! my mom is 85 uh, years old, so she's wearing um, masks with uh, face shields and including us. So we did great.
0: Good. And you, and you kept your mom uh at a distance so she wasn't close to any of you folks
5: yes yeah we try uh because i have four kids there uh 21, 18, 16, and and 17. So I told them not to be too close to my mom, and they followed all of them. In fact, we did great. We had so much fun because, again, uh, even though my sister cannot make it, uh, we saw them through uh, the big smart TV while playing the bingo.
0: Christine, I think a lot of people are doing that kind of a hybrid thing where maybe it's a small group of people that are distancing and bringing in other people via Zoom or iMessage or other apps like that um, to expand the party in a way that's safer. Christine, thank you very much for sharing it, and happy Mother's Day belatedly to you as well as the mother of four. We'll continue with more of your phone calls as we talk about what your Mother's Day weekend was like and what you saw when people returning to some of the parks that open beaches trails uh or getting together for mother's day or doing it via technology at a distance what were your experiences 866 893 back in just one minute The late Richard Penniman, better known as Little Richard, who died Saturday at the age of 87. We're playing some of his music during the course of Air Talk today. I don't know whether Lucille or Long Tall Sally celebrated Mother's Day yesterday. Probably so. Uh, 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. They get together with Mustang Sally and have a whole big Mother's Day celebration. Uh, Let's continue with Laura in Whittier. You're on Airtalk.
6: Hi, good morning, Larry. Hi. I called in because I was like, I was listening to your program and Mother's Day was so odd because we're we're a Latino family and it's our culture to be together. And, um, it was so different from last year. I saw my grandsons, but at a safe distance and, oh, I'm so used to hugging and touching. The whole family is like devastated because we've missed so much, but we were raised like this. We were raised to be together and la familia es todo. It's like the family is everything. And, this is a vital part of our of our lives and and it just hit us yesterday it was, it was
0: hard i i i completely get that um i'm part of a latino family and um you know my father in law it's just it it weighs on him so heavily that he can't. He's a hugger, and to not be able to hug his daughters, including my wife, or to hug me, or to, you know, it's, it's, you just see how, how different. I miss it too, but I think what you're describing is. You know, when you're raised with this and it's it's a it's a whole part of of communicating love and to have that just, you know, one day that's not available to you. I understand why yesterday was so hard, Laura.
6: Yeah, it was really hard. And the family got us through the Great Recession and we've been through cancer and everything. But this was harder. It it was just as hard as losing people because we lose part of our culture with it. It, you know,
0: were you able to, through technology, have contact with your kids and grandkids?
6: Oh, my grandsons came over each in different batches. Their, their parents brought them over, but it was so odd.
0: It's just like high. having the distance. Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. It was. I, I blow kisses at everybody, but uh, it was difficult.
0: <laughs> I I hear it, Laura. We're with you. Thank you for sharing that. Beautifully uh, expressed. Eight six six eight nine three K P E C C Karen in Pasadena says for Mother's Day my son made meals and delivered them for me and other family members and included a little note for everyone. It was really sweet and a great way to feel connected. Karen, what a son you've got. That's that's beautiful to hear about. Uh, train tweets at Airtalk, I'll be staying at a youth hostel on the west side of Los Angeles this week. They don't require masks, so this should be interesting. I'm surprised they don't require masks given City of L.A. And maybe there is an exemption for... Uh, places where people uh, do short-term stays. I don't know, but certainly businesses require masks for you to enter. Stuart writes on our Facebook page, while I got some solid exercise yesterday morning hiking Fryman Canyon, the experience was marred by the dangerously inconsiderate behavior of many of my fellow hikers. More than a third of them wore no masks, and at least 15% conspicuously failed to observe social distancing. At one point, an unmasked biker spat mucus onto the trail, not three feet away from the also maskless hiking trio just ahead of me. I spent so much time in a state of hyper-awareness of these clueless virus vectors that I couldn't properly appreciate and enjoy the beautiful surroundings. Stuart, thank you for sharing that. That is, though, a great name for a rock group, Virus Vectors. Uh, You can share your comments again on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Let's hear from uh, Lizette in the city of orange, you're on air talk.
7: Hi, I was calling because my husband's a physician. So we constantly, we get daily contact with him that goes into the hospital. And so for me, it's the opposite people invite us or, or they get upset because we can't do things. And I tell them, you know, it's not because of me, I'm not scared necessarily of getting infected by someone else because we have it daily from my husband that it can potentially bring it home. But I'm scared
0: of giving it to them and and spreading it. So it makes it very difficult. And do you feel like they're able to take that in and understand that? You know,
7: some people do. Some people just get hurt. But, you know, like with my children, they're like, well, some, you know, I see some people have like five different cars in their driveway. And I know that's not all of their cars. And I say, you know what? Because we love them. We can't go visit them. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah, so hard. Lizette, thank you for sharing that. And our best to your husband as well for the work he does as a physician and all of you, by extension, in your family who serve that very important cause. Thank you. Let's talk with Linda in Marina Del Rey. Linda, real quickly, what was your weekend like, your Mother's Day?
3: Uh, It was beautiful. I went to my daughter's, and I am 78 years old. So, you know, my kids are, um, they are definitely in their middle years. And my daughter set up the backyard with three separate tables, one for her and her her kids and her husband, one for my son and his wife. And I was in the middle with myself because I'm divorced. And they were six feet apart, all decorated beautifully with flowers and beautiful cloths. My son ordered food. It was all brought in. It was fabulous. It was one of the nicest Mother's Day I've
0: ever had. Oh, that, And you probably appreciated it all the more because of the limitations and all the work your son and, and folks went to to put that on for you. Linda, thank you so much. And a happy Mother's Day to you, uh, belatedly. Patty in Cyprus says, I use Zoom and called my kids and grandkids in Signal Hill and in Germany. Took a lot of coordination, I'm sure, Patty, because of the time zone differences, but it was great to be able To celebrate Mother's Day with all of them. Patty, thank you very much for sharing your experiences. You can share what your Mother's Day weekend was like on our Air Talk page at kpecc.org. We have much more to come in the second hour of Air Talk, including a couple more uh, Little Richard songs as well. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Throughout the course of the show, we're sprinkling in some music from Little Richard Penniman, who died Saturday at the age of 87. A whole series of huge hits from the mid-1950s, but continued to actively tour through much of his life, on and off. Sometimes he'd leave to go into ministry. Sometimes he'd come back and be rocking on stages again across the country. Uh, We're going to a little bit later this hour uh, talk with you uh, about uh, politics, because we have so much, uh, so much to talk about in politics, including some of these U.S. Supreme Court cases that we're going to consider next. As you might well know, this is the second week for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear arguments uh, via telephone and teleconferencing. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was being treated for an infection at a Maryland hospital last week, actually had a couple of the day's hearings uh, from her hospital bed. She's since been released. We're going to talk about uh, her condition as well as what the court is taking up, some big cases this week. Joining us is Kimberly Robinson, Bloomberg Law, U.S. Supreme Court reporter and co-host of Bloomberg's podcast, Cases and Controversies. Also with us is Reuters Supreme Court reporter Lawrence Hurley. Uh, Let's begin with a case uh, that was heard today involving two Catholic schools in the South Bay area uh, of Southern California, Torrance and Hermosa Beach. The cases combined are Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Beru and St. James School versus Beale. Uh, And uh, let's start first. Kimberly Robinson, share with us what the issues are uh, in this case involving ministerial exception.
7: All right. Well, thank you for having me on. so the ministerial exception is uh, an exception that lower federal courts have actually accepted and granted religious employers um, for many decades. The Supreme Court, however, only recognized it officially in 2012. And basically what it's meant to do is to allow religious employers like these schools to be the ones who determine who in their schools are going to be teaching their students about religion. And so it it says that federal courts can't hear cases uh, alleging employment discrimination by a religious employer, and it's really just meant to keep uh, the state out of those kinds of decisions. And so what's at issue here is uh, who qualifies for that exception. So I mentioned that the Supreme Court first recognized it in 2012, but they didn't say very much about it, and so lower courts have had to grapple um, with this issue, and today it was the Supreme Court's turn.
0: Well, let's uh, listen to a bit of it, because, of course, starting last week, as part of it being uh, teleconferenced uh, arguments, they're also made available live to the public. Here's Justice Stephen Breyer asking a question of assistant to the Solicitor General Morgan Ratner, arguing for the U.S., um, weighing in on the side of the schools.
4: So who falls within the minister? Now, I can say easily a person of leadership or authority that's not going to help that much so when you take your categorical approach minister person of leadership person of authority what do you want to add how do we explain to people in your view what that should amount to
3: well your honor i think at a minimum you need to add the other categories that you discussed in hosanna tabor and it you specifically said this doesn't just apply to leaders of the congregation it applies to other employees who preach their beliefs, teach their faith,
0: and carry out their mission. Uh, That's uh, Morgan Ratner, uh, again, uh, assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States, not a party formally in the case, but weighing in on the side of the schools. Kimberly Robinson, um, I understand she's one of just three women arguing during these two weeks of telephone arguments?
7: Right. Well, it was a really historic moment for the Supreme Court when they first heard uh, these telephonic arguments. And actually, two female advocates um, were arguing the case that morning, Uh, but it was a bit misrepresentative. Um, As you mentioned, only three women are arguing in this two-week sitting, Um, and that's actually more along the numbers that we see in a Supreme Court term. So we crunched those numbers. And at the end of this term, at the end of these arguments, men will have argued in 136 times at the court and women
0: just 20. Would you expect to see that change in the coming years, given that I think there are now more women graduating from law school than men, or because of the types of law that women and men tend to go into, is it going to take longer to change that?
7: Well, you know, we've been seeing those kind of numbers out of law schools for a while now, and it seems like that the law school graduation rate really isn't what's holding up um, the equality here. There are a lot of other... Um, You know, pipelines that have issues getting women into them. And so we see um, one of those being uh, clerkships at the Supreme Court. It was only with uh, Brett Kavanaugh on the court where women actually outnumbered male clerks at the court. So um, a lot of places to work on to get those numbers to be
0: equalized. Kimberly Robinson, Bloomberg Law, U.S. Supreme Court reporter. Lawrence Hurley, Rutgers Supreme Court reporter. Uh, Lawrence, your thoughts about this morning's hearing in the case involving the two parochial schools?
2: Uh, yeah, it does seem like <clears throat> kind of a difficult one for the court to decide um, because they have to decide on this, the scope of this exception, you know, who who kind of counts and who doesn't within the context of these kind of uh, these schools. And uh, it seemed like a lot of the justices had differing views on, you know, who would be covered and who wouldn't be covered. So um, it could be kind of a tricky one for them to come up with a, with a um, you know, majority on that one.
0: All right, I think I said Rutgers, the New Jersey University, instead of Reuters. (laughs) I got sports on my brain, ready for uh, for basketball and football to uh, resume. Uh, Reuters Supreme Court reporter Lawrence Hurley with us. Uh, So, what are the stakes here, generally, for religious schools, Lawrence Hurley? Um, If the court grants the the exception that the schools are wanting, is that an almost universal exemption from federal discrimination law?
2: Well, I think um, that's what uh, some of the parties would like. Uh, I think, um, of course, if it goes the other way um, and and the court says that uh, certain employees can bring these lawsuits, then that would be that would probably change things quite a lot because, uh, it could, uh, open the doors to more, uh, employees being able to file these lawsuits, which obviously no one, no one wants to, uh, be sued and, uh, the schools are no different. Um, and it's also, you know, this, this case comes to the court at a time when the court is hearing a lot of cases to do with religious rights and, um, Including um, other cases this term uh, and and next term. And uh, so it it could be part of a trend or, or, you know, of the court favoring religious rights, which we've seen over the last few years.
0: Uh, Another uh, important series of cases having to do. With President Trump's financial records, Congress wanting to be able to subpoena his accountants and bank representatives, get copies of his financial records as well as tax returns. Kimberly Robinson, how do these, uh, these cases this week uh, relate to that?
7: Well, so there are actually three cases that the court is going to be hearing tomorrow, and the question is very similar in all three of them. In the first two, the question is whether or not the House can uh, subpoena records from third parties – these are the banks um, and the financial institutes that you mentioned – Um, under its authority to make lawmaking. And in the other case, it's whether or not a New York grand jury can subpoena um, these kinds of financial information from third parties about the president. And in both cases, the thrust of the president's argument is that if these kinds of investigations are allowed to go on, it could distract the president um, from doing the important work of the office. And we've seen a little bit of this um, in the administration's response to the COVID-19 crisis, saying that you know, things like impeachment distracted the administration from being able to focus on really important issues.
0: All right. Uh, also this week, Lawrence Hurley, uh, a case having to do with so-called faithless electors, electors who don't adhere to their state's rules about how they're supposed to cast their uh electoral vote in the general election and decide to go their own way this involves electors in uh both Washington state and Colorado
2: yeah that's right and it's kind of a an oddity uh, of the US uh, electoral system um you know where these Uh, The electors are supposed to, you know, by tradition, they're supposed to vote for um, the candidate who wins the the votes in their state when they cast their vote in the Electoral College to determine who gets to be president. And during the last election in 2016, there were uh, there was a sort of this slightly weird effort to try and stop um, President Trump uh, from winning, where. Some of the electors tried to come up with a deal with other electors where they wouldn't cast their votes for their candidate, and then in return, that those candidates wouldn't vote for Trump. Never really got anywhere, but uh, some of the some of the uh, the electors did end up not voting for the for the candidate who won in their state, and then the states tried to um, come after them and punish them for that. Um, and that's kind of what this this case is about. It's about whether the states have any power to to make the electors vote for the person who wins the vote in that state and of course if the supreme court were to rule that they the states can't force them to do that then it would allow electors to vote for kind of whoever they wanted to
0: well and and um lower courts have have they taken differing um views of this whether a state can compel an elector to vote in a certain way
2: Yeah, I mean, in the the cases here, um, that happened. Um, uh, And so uh, that's why the the Supreme Court had to intervene um, to uh, kind of decide this once and for all, Which, and one of the reasons why they took it up now um, in this special session of uh, teleconference cases is because presumably they want to get this decided before the uh, election uh, in November so that the same thing doesn't happen again.
0: All right. Uh, Kimberly Robinson, anything else to add about the faithless uh, electors' cases? Well,
7: just one um, pretty interesting procedural note is that these were originally to be argued um, together, um, but now they're separated because Justice Sotomoyar figured out that she actually is friends with one of the parties in one of the cases. So instead, they'll be back-to-back, and she'll just be sitting in on the first
0: one. All right. And Kimberly, any other cases notable this week? Well, we
7: did have a notable case uh, this week or this morning um, out of Oklahoma. Uh, it involves really technical issues about how you establish a tribe and how you disestablish a tribe. But the impacts could be pretty broad in that, you know, half of Oklahoma could actually not be Oklahoma. Um, so that, that's an interesting one to keep our eyes on.
0: Wow. Uh, that would be something. Kimberly, what's your sense of how the teleconference is working? I mean, based on Being in the room for the face-to-face arguments versus how they're playing out over the telephone, is there a significant difference?
7: There does seem to be a significant difference, and I would say the biggest one is the way that the questioning is being conducted. So in the courtroom, the justices are just kind of have a free for all. If one justice asks a question and they get an answer and another one wants to piggyback, they just interrupt the advocate, whereas now they're taking turns in order of seniority. And so you don't really get the same flow that you've had um, in other oral arguments. Um, at the same time, though, the advocates are getting more time to speak. Uh, and so, you know, there's some benefits and, and some you know, not so beneficial things about it
0: yeah we're and we're hearing from Justice Clarence Thomas, who typically is quiet during uh, the in person arguments. What struck you about the questions that he's been asking uh, early on in, in the oral arguments?
7: Well, just the fact that he's been asking these questions um, is striking. He once went about ten years without asking a single question during oral argument. But he's asked a question every time he's had an opportunity to, and we see that a lot of the other justices are actually following up on those questions, saying, oh, well, as Justice Thomas said, or can you clarify what your answer was to Justice Thomas, suggesting that perhaps they think that he has some pretty good questions to add.
0: Kimberly Robinson, Bloomberg Law, U.S. Supreme Court reporter. Lawrence Hurley, Reuters Supreme Court reporter. Uh, Lawrence, uh, what do we understand about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the justices' health after she uh, did a couple of the uh, hearings last week from her hospital bed?
2: Yeah, the um, I mean, she's been participating. She's been asking questions as well, just like Justice Thomas Um you know, sometimes because they're on the phone uh, remotely, it's kind of hard to tell exactly, you know, what they sound like. But uh, she doesn't sound too much different to how she normally does. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court on Friday reported that all the justices were well, uh, which is the last update we had on, on their health amid the uh, the pandemic. So uh, and they all obviously participated today. And there's obviously a lot of uh, interest in uh, Justice Ginsburg's health because of her age. She's 87. Um, But, you know, quite a lot of the other justices are also uh, on the old side and uh, would also potentially be at risk.
0: All right. And Lawrence, before we go, I wanted to ask you briefly about uh, a Reuters uh, investigative piece that uh, you did looking at a qualified immunity for law enforcement officers involved in controversial use of force cases. We're expecting the court later this week to announce whether they take this up.
2: Well, the justice on Friday is scheduled to uh consider uh, in their private meeting whether to take up a case that asks, asks them to uh, reform or even toss out this special legal defense that uh, government officials have, including police officers, uh, that allows them to uh, get off the hook on cases uh, accusing them of constitutional violations, even when a court has found that there was a constitutional violation, uh, but that it wasn't clearly established at the time of, of the incident and that the officer should have known it was clearly established. And our our investigative report in which we looked at hundreds of appeals court rulings in light of recent Supreme Court decisions on this issue has shown that officers are increasingly uh, benefiting from this defense. And so more and more cases are being thrown out at an early stage without the plaintiffs uh, who have filed suit being able to have their day in court.
0: All right. Uh, Lawrence, thank you so much. Lawrence Hurley of Reuters, Kimberly Robinson, Bloomberg Law, the Supreme Court reporters joining us to talk about what's a big week's worth of cases, arguments being heard over telephone conferencing, uh, the justices and the attorneys uh, who are presenting their oral arguments before the high court. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPCC coming up. We're going to talk politics, very important special congressional election in North LA County, and then much to talk about nationally as well. We'll be back in one minute on Air Talk. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. So glad to have you with us. My thanks to Kyle Stokes, KPECC Education Reporter. Very busy man covering what's going on with all the changes to education in the wake of home learning. Uh, but Kyle on Friday is stepping in to host our hour of Air Talk at 10. Kyle, thank you so much. Always appreciate the great work and the dedication you bring when you host Air Talk in my absence. As I got a little bit of a break. Friday for the longer weekend, back today refreshed and raring to go, and Monday means politics. Joining us today are political analysts, are Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College, professor of politics. Speaking of distance learning, he's doing that with his CMC students. And Amanda Renteria, board member of Emerge America, a national organization that identifies and trains Democratic women who are running for political office or seeking higher office. She's uh, Hillary Clinton's 2016 National Political Director during that presidential run. Amanda and Jack, great to have you with us. Uh, Let's start, first of all, with the uh, case of the Department of Justice dropping the prosecution of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. This after FBI documents came out uh, indicating that they were hoping to get Flynn lying about his statements as to whether he'd met with the Russian ambassador this part of the whole uh, early Trump uh, term investigation into allegations of collusion with the Russian government. Professor Pitney, your thoughts about the dropping of that prosecution?
8: Uh, Highly suspicious. Uh, The uh, former official of the Justice Department had an op-ed saying that uh, Attorney General Barr grossly distorted uh, her words But to make it seem as if there were something improper with the FBI investigation. And she argued very, very forcefully that there was not. And so uh, between that and between the calls by many, many former Justice Department officials for Barr's resignation, Uh, There's serious questions about the propriety of this move.
0: You weren't concerned, though, by some of the documents that came out, Jack, indicating the approach that the FBI took to this investigation of Flynn and and the controversial interview of him?
8: Well, the uh, FBI plays hardball, but this is not uh, a, a, a naive person. This isn't the Central Park Five. Uh, ironically, Trump uh, still says that they were guilty, even though they were coerced. In this case, this was the former head of one of the intelligence agencies of the government uh, who ought to know how to talk to the FBI. And uh, they were conducting a counterintelligence investigation of which this testimony was a part. And uh, he lied and he uh, confessed to lying. That's pretty much the ballgame.
0: All right. Amanda Renteria, your thoughts about the dropping of prosecution of Flynn?
9: You know, I I think I agree with Jack here. um, And it's just a sad statement about where we are in justice right now, how people view justice. You know, for some people, people are talking about, you know, the Department of Justice or some of the things that we're seeing, how some people are treated within our justice system and, and some aren't. The problem is the overall public institution Of like Department of Justice, that people truly trusted, you see it breaking down. And this is another avenue in which people will look at this public institution and wonder um, what has happened and where do you go when you're just looking for facts and justice in our society?
0: Well, and and there's a huge partisan divide here, too, because you've got for many Republicans um, antipathy toward the FBI whose tactics they're being very critical of, seeing it as being used in a way to try and um, an attack President Trump early on trying to derail his presidency, and Democrats critical of Barr, uh, his leadership of the Justice Department, seeing it as carrying out uh, a political agenda. So, Jack, what, what, is this just the new normal that this is the way we're going to be with, with this completely politicized?
8: Yeah, they, uh, it used to be the FBI was considered above politics. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the uh, Efren Zibilis Jr. show from the 1960s. And uh, it was bipartisan agreement that the FBI was absolutely professional. And now uh, it's highly partisan. During the election, uh, there were suspicions that the FBI was in fact Uh, prejudice in favor of Trump and giving information to Giuliani by indirect means. Uh, And now the Republicans uh, are not getting the uh, answers they want from the FBI, so they attack it as uh, some kind of uh, element of the deep state. Uh, This is very unfortunate, and I hope we can return to uh, treating the FBI as an investigative body, not as a political football.
0: President Trump's asking the U.S. Supreme Court to bar the House of Representatives from accessing documents from the Mueller investigation. There was, of course, the redacted report that was presented. Uh, So the Supreme Court, I guess, likely to make the call on this. Amanda Renteria, um, what do you think is the significance of the entirety of, of those reports being released?
9: You know, I think what we're seeing is every single step is um, moving to a judge or court decision more and more, whether it's about policy, whether it's about elections. And I just think this is a very dangerous place to go in a country where we have had three equal branches of government. um, This truly breaks down those three equal branches of government when you've got to go to the court system or the justice system or have a judge decide Um, how things work. Not Not only does it slow down the process of how does the country move forward, but it really does erode trust in the full fabric of what our constitution is and what the equal branches of government are. And it further intensifies the disagreements on a partisan level where we were supposed to have healthy discourse in our Congress. And that's what truly um, concerns me is that it really gets in the way of progress it really gets in the way of productive relationships going forward
0: Uh, jack there are those who would argue though this is the way it's supposed to work you've got three branches of government a dispute between the house and the white house and so it's up to the judiciary to make the call what do you think
8: Uh, It's true, though. uh, Very often the judiciary steps aside and says, well, this is a political question. We're not going to get involved. Uh, The trouble is on issue after issue, the administration has uh, declined to provide information to Congress, most notoriously uh, a blanket order of refusing subpoenas on the part of Congress. And if the judiciary doesn't Enforce subpoenas. There's uh, not much that Congress can do, at least in the short run. Uh, So uh, it's uh, appropriate for all three branches to be involved, but the judiciary does have to step up and make a decision.
0: We're talking with Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College professor of government, and Amanda Renteria, member of the board of Emerge America, which identifies and trains Democratic women for office. She was Hillary Clinton's national political director during the 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, Also in politics, of course, COVID-19. And at this point, there appears to be a big impasse on what would be a third stimulus plan. Uh, We had the CARES Act, the follow-up to that with additional Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, and so the question is, will there be a third act? Jack, what do you think?
8: I think eventually there will be, uh, because there are a number of Republican-leaning states that increasingly are going to need help from the federal government. Uh, The reluctance on the part of the uh, Republicans in the Senate has been, well, this will be a giveaway to uh, the blue states. Actually, the blue states are donor states uh, in the overall relationship to the federal government. Uh, but increasingly, as we see more and more uh, COVID cases in the red states, uh, they're going to be in more and more uh, medical and fiscal trouble, and they're going to need the help. So sooner or later, uh, this is going to come through because uh, the president's base is going to end up demanding it.
0: Amanda, do you think uh, even with the concerns about um, the further increase in the, in the deficit, do you think the money will be provided?
9: I do. And I think it's just a matter of timing. I agree here with Jack again, which is, you know, when you have 33 million people on unemployment, there is no doubt it is going to affect every industry, every state and at folks. um, I mean, just the vast impact that this thing has had and it's not going away. And in certain red states, it is going to actually increase. You could just see it in the numbers. And at that point, there will be enough pressure. And by the way, the election is not far away, and many of these senators are going to start to get concerned about what they're seeing on the ground. And it's going to be very difficult to have another story or to not do anything about it in these next coming months. So we will absolutely see it. It's a matter of when does that pressure increase and align and all of a sudden a one voice from the Republican Party who wants to move it forward. But it will happen.
0: Steve Mnuchin a project, projecting a 20 percent unemployment rate next month and a few months after that, 25 percent percent of Americans being unemployed. Uh, It's almost incomprehensible. We're talking with political analysts Amanda Renteria and Jack Pitney joining us. Coming up later this hour, KPCC politics correspondent Libby Dankman will be with me specifically to talk about the 25th congressional district race in North Los Angeles County. And we'll ask our political analysts, uh, Jack and Amanda, also to weigh in on that. Um, Some of the polling we've seen, albeit this is old at this point, showed that two thirds of Americans concerned about the country reopening too quickly. But Jack Pitney, we're clearly seeing a difference, some of it appearing to be uh, a partisan divide. Over how quickly the country should be reopening businesses, and how do you see this factoring into the presidential race? Jack, is 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 President Trump um, going to have to be, you know, um, catering to his base on this issue?
8: Uh, he definitely has been in recent weeks talking about liberating various states. Uh, Speaking favorably about the protests, but he has to be very careful. Uh, there's uh, a very uh, serious risk that these protests could backfire, either resulting in disorder in state capitals, or if the uh, reopening proceeds way too fast, uh, you could have uh, a surge in COVID cases. So those are very, both very serious risks. On the other hand, uh, I think there's almost universal agreement we have to reopen at some point. And so you're going to see different states taking different approaches, depending on their circumstances. Take uh, the state of Montana. uh, The governor is a Democrat, but uh, Montana has very low population density. Uh, Basically, the San Gabriel Valley uh, spread out over thousands of square miles. Uh, Montana can uh, reopen at a different pace from California. So you're going to see a lot of differences among the states.
0: Uh, We're also seeing differences um, in how the White House is dealing with potential exposure to COVID-19, where we have uh, the press secretary for Vice President Pence, who tested positive, um, but uh, the vice president, as well as President Trump, are not wearing masks when they're out in public. Um, Amanda, there's been a lot of criticism of them, uh, over this, your thoughts about their decision to get tested on a daily basis as they say they're doing in lieu of wearing masks.
9: Uh, you know, I have to just personally say that I really feel for, um, folks who are working in the white house right now. On the one hand, you're trying to really exude this confidence and everything is okay. And on the other hand, you are going through personal family crises, figuring out whether or not your loved one who's working in the White House is sick. Um, And this is it's just so hard to exist in that space, particularly because the president really doesn't want to or doesn't seem to want to admit um, the gravity of this moment and what's happening right behind him and right around him. And so I do, I, I feel for the situation that's at hand. And the and the problem is, is everyone is looking to how he acts and how he exudes empathy and how he exudes leadership in this moment. And so we will see in the coming days what he decides, whether he pretends as though he doesn't need to wear a mask or whether they flip the other side and say, hey, we're going through this with you and this is what we are doing um, but you can see the tension right now in, you know, in the White House and the and the balance that they have to have when trying to decide how do they how do they show their own crisis internally and how do they exude leadership and confidence at the moment, too.
0: And I wonder how older voters uh, who disproportionately support Trump, how they're going to react to this Jack Pitney, because um Older Americans are at significantly higher risk from this, and could this potentially hurt the president with that portion of his base?
8: Uh, That definitely is a political danger for the president because older Americans are going to look and sort of scratch their heads and say, why is this guy taking risks to his own health, not to mention risk to the health of people on his staff? Uh, he's interacting with older people. A lot of his more senior advisors are of an advanced age as well. Uh, and so this sends a very bad signal. And older uh, Americans, uh, a group that I am entering myself, uh, it's uh, uh, are very much aware of the risks and uh, are probably going to react in a negative way.
0: We'll continue our conversation with political uh, analyst Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College professor of politics and uh, board member of Emerge America, Amanda Renteria who ran Hillary Clinton's uh, national uh, politics side of her presidential campaign as director in 2016. We have much more to talk about in politics, including a big special election for the congressional seat uh, that Katie Hill represented before she resigned that seat. Republicans are hoping to take it back. It had been a GOP stronghold before Hill uh, took the seat. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, back in 90 Seconds on Air Talk. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We have some news about Major League Baseball. The Associated Press reports MLB owners have given the go ahead to make a proposal to the Players Union, which could lead to the start of the season around the 4th of July. Teams would play in ballparks without fans. And uh, the designated hitter would be expanded to the National League. All teams would play with a DH. Spring training would start in early to mid-June. Uh, And teams would play about 82 regular season games, most against opponents in their own division. Interleague matchups would be limited to uh, the divisions, you know, East against East from the American League, National League, uh, AL West versus National League West. So Dodgers and Angels would play each other, Dodgers and A's and the like. A postseason play would be expanded to 14 teams as the wild cards for each league would be doubled. And teams would be playing at their own regular season ballparks like Angel Stadium and Dodger Stadium. But if for some reason, because of a localized outbreak, public health officials said they could not play at their regular ballparks, they would then move to play games at other locations. And the All-Star game scheduled for Dodger Stadium July 14th would likely not be played. So this again is subject to approval of the Players Association, but that's the only the start of the process because then you've got public health officials in each of these local jurisdictions that have Major League Stadiums that would have to sign off to their local team playing home games without any fans in the stands, but still visiting teams, their players, their whole um, support system uh, that comes with them, traveling for those games. So we'll see what happens, but at least it is an incremental step in that process, MLB trying to get games up and going in July. We're talking politics on Air Talk with our guest Jack Pitney and Amanda Renteria. Uh, I wanted to ask you all about the uh, special election election. Uh, that's going to be held for the North uh, Los Angeles County seat that Katie Hill had represented. She resigned the seat after um, the allegation that she had had um, a romantic relationship with uh, a campaign staffer, which she admitted to, and um, a a congressional staffer, which she denied. Uh, Amanda, let me start with you on this one. This is a hugely important race for both parties.
9: Yes, it is. And it's not just important for both parties, but it'll be very interesting to see, um, to get a read on where the electorate is right now, where those divisions are, um, how much COVID has affected how people view this race, because both of these candidates have taken different sides um, of, of the conversation as well. Um, but but and then I think the third piece to it is it will be interesting to see the logistics. What does vote by mail look like right now? And it'll really be the first picture across the country in a particularly uh, close race. What happens right now? So everybody will certainly be watching.
0: Yeah. And Jack Pitney, uh, the vote by mail will be fascinating because uh, given the COVID-19 restrictions, Governor Newsom has mandated that for every election uh that ballots are mailed to every voter. They have the opportunity to either vote by mail or they can drop off that ballot at a a vote center or they can still go and vote in person. But how does that factor into this race?
8: Uh, Well, a few weeks ago, President Trump was complaining that mail ballots were crooked, that mail ballots automatically favored Democrats. Uh, but the early data in this race indicate that the mail ballots favored the Republican. And in fact, there was no real justification for the president's earlier position. And uh, Republicans have been very active in uh, trying to uh, to gin up this vote. So it's very possible that they could win if they do. Uh, I think that kind of undercuts the president's position that mail ballots are somehow tainted. Uh,
0: there was uh, a controversial statement um, that was made by Christy Smith uh, that was recorded as she was speaking to donors, where where she was um, uh, making fun of, of Mike Garcia, the Republican, being a former Navy fighter pilot and, and sort of acting as though that's no qualification to run for Congress. Let me bring KPCC uh, senior politics correspondent Libby Dankman into the conversation. Libby, I was very surprised by Smith's comment because, you know, this is a district with Edwards Air Force Base and, you know, a lot of ex-military folks. How's that being perceived there?
10: Yeah, you'll remember it was represented by Buck McKeon for 20-something years before that. And he served on the Armed Services Committee and was the chairman of that committee for a while. You have a ton of veterans in the area, and you mentioned Edwards Air Force Base. Um, Mike Garcia is really, in his campaign materials, highlighting his military service. I spoke to one campaign uh, uh operative who said that they even had to get his signs cleared by Paramount because they're so close to what the Top Gun logo looks like. He kind of looks like a, a, a Top Gun, Mike Garcia, a hybrid sign. The response to this has been very unfavorable for Christy Smith. This was no doubt a gaffe in an area that has such a strong relationship to the military. She has apologized. This was an unguarded moment with a liberal group that you know really encapsulates the issue of campaigning at a distance and maybe Sitting in your house and being on a Zoom call, it does not lead to as guarded a conversation as you might have in front of a room full of people. Um, but it it certainly has been a, a trip up that she has apologized for and tried to move on from.
0: Does does she live in you know congressional race? You don't actually have to live in the district you're running for. Does she live in the district? Because it seems it just seems surprising that she'd even think that way about a military fighter pilot if you come from that district?
10: I think that she was trying to make a poorly worded joke about the fact that um, the Garcia campaign does lean so heavily into the Navy fighter pilot uh, uh piece of his biography it it was just really an awkward thing to say she was on the new hall school board she has a very close relationship with that district she has represented it in the assembly for uh she flipped a seat there in 2018 um as far as i know she does live in the district there hasn't been any attack against her as a carpetbagger which would normally come in a race like this yes and um i think it was really just an example of the way these uh, digital campaigning strategies can go wrong. Um, although a gaffe like that, you know, especially in front of a liberal group who's kind of egging her on, as the folks on this call were. I guess it's something that could have happened to to a lot of politicians. But it it really has been a troubling thing for their campaign. I was going to
0: say, you know, in another district, it's not necessarily a big deal, but it's just that one where where that uh, it would seem would hit hard. Amanda Renteria, your your thoughts about um, this race and how much do you think that gaffe will will hurt uh, Smith's candidacy?
9: It's a, it's a big deal. Um, this is an important uh, constituency base in general, and um, obviously a mistake. Um, and words matter, and things get around pretty quickly. And so the real question as to how much will it have an effect on election day or in vote by mail is how good how good the campaign, really how good Garcia's campaign has been in targeting that message to his voters and really using that to bring out some energy, but um, obviously a, a big mistake at this point. Um, could be really critical. And this race is going to looks like could be tight when you just look at the numbers from the registered voters.
0: Uh, I also wonder about Republican Mike Garcia's tack and um, support for President Trump. Uh, as we know, in Southern California, there's not a huge amount of support for the president. So, Amanda, you know, your your thoughts about that linkage and, and what, what's the the cost benefit for him of that link?
9: Well, I don't think he had another option. I mean, I think he he went there. He's been there. And so um, and very early on uh, in in his career and some of the things that he said in the past. And so there was really no other option but to go there. And as we've seen across the country, um, you are either 100 percent in that camp. There is no middle ground um, when you're when you want to talk about Trump. And so. For him, it sort of lines up with how he's been talking. I do think it will hurt him, especially right now, especially when you when he leans into opening things back up. When you're living in a state that has proven the quick action of shutdown and the thoughtful process that Gavin Newsom has had, um, I think being on the opposite side of Governor Newsom right now at this moment in time will will likely hurt him with his Orange County voters.
0: Jack, what do you think?
8: Yeah, I think it's uh they both have liabilities. Uh, Christy Smith obviously with the uh gaffe about the military, Trump is not an asset in this district because it was a district that went for Hillary Clinton is trending more democratic. Uh ultimately, we don't know who is uh going to cast votes at the very end. Is there going to be a rush of democratic ballots in the last couple of days? That's possible. If not, Uh, then Garcia has a very good chance of flipping the seat.
0: All right. I want to thank you both so much for being with us. That's uh, Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College Professor of Government. Uh, Also with us, Amanda Renteria of Emerge America. Libby Dankman will continue with us. We have some more politics to uh, talk with her about. And if you have questions about that 25th Congressional District race, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, back in just one minute. You just heard the governor's name dropped a couple of minutes ago, and Governor Newsom will be here for his daily new news conference. We'll have it for you right after AirTalk here on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. We also remind you when you're home, which many of us are many more hours each day, just tell your smart speaker to play KPCC and you can follow everything you would typically hear on your car radio at 89.3. We're talking about the 25th Congressional District race in northern L.A. County, uh, which includes uh, Santa Clarita Valley. Uh, includes the high desert area of Los Angeles County. It's the seat where Katie Hill uh, had flipped it uh, blue, uh, first Democrat to hold that seat in many, many years. Then she um, resigned after uh, allegations uh, of uh, an intimate relationship with a congressional staffer. She denied the allegation, but because she had had a relationship with a campaign staffer, she resigned Uh, her position this special election uh, tomorrow to fill the seat. It's Democrat Christy Smith, longtime state assemblywoman, and Republican Mike Garcia, a former Navy fighter pilot. Uh, Libby Denkman, KPCC politics reporter with me. Libby, how much are the two parties dumping into this race?
10: You know, the Democrats and Republicans are spending, the DCCC and the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee are are definitely um, ponying up money for TV ad buys. There was a $200,000 buy even from Katie Hill's nonprofit, which ran an ad featuring her outside of the White House um, talking about President Trump and the need to get out the vote, very pointedly not talking about Christy Smith, probably at the request of that campaign. Um, because of the delicacy of Katie Hill and the feelings in that district over what happened, Um, But there are a number of groups that sat this one out. House Majority PAC, um, Emily's List. Their attitude was that this special election will have an electorate that favors Republicans to a greater degree than Democrats. And it's worthwhile for them to wait until these two candidates meet again in November when the general election will have the chance to capture that seat for two years this special is just for the seven months until January 2021. And uh, again, a lot of folks think uh, Republicans simply show up more reliably in an off-timed election like this May 12th contest.
0: The, The only thing I'd argue, and I understand the composition of the electorate changes between a special and a general, but someone running as an incumbent, does have some degree of advantage so whichever one of them wins the special election it would seem you know they go into november in with the advantage
10: No doubt. I think that that's something the Smith campaign would certainly argue and it was probably part of their pleas to outside groups to get in and spend as much as was spent to help Katie Hill win the seat. Um, But again, I think a lot of Democratic groups looking at the field and thinking, you know, the seven months incumbency is not going to advantage Garcia the way that uh, a full two year term would. And we're going to save our money. That was the calculation that they made. And we'll see how that pans out when the general Comes around.
0: All right. Uh, And the fact that everybody's going to be mailed to ballot, there are still vote centers, including a new one in in Lancaster, which um, you can take some credit for, Libby. Um, So that. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) You certainly reported on the lack of one in Lancaster.
10: Yeah, Uh, that was a, a situation where the Democratic Party, the local county Democrats, and the Christy Smith campaign were making noise last week about the fact that Lancaster, which is 22% black compared with the rest of the district, which is something like eight or 9% black, uh, did not have a vote center the way that neighboring Palmdale had three, Santa Clarita, Simi Valley, other parts of the district had in-person vote centers opening up. And the Democrats suddenly felt like that this was a problem, especially because of the African-American community of Lancaster They started lobbying the registrar recorder to open an extra vote center in Lancaster. And I called up Mayor R. Rex Paris in Lancaster to see what he thought. He's a Republican, although somewhat of a maverick in the party and and holds a lot of uh, variety of views associated with both parties. And he told me he doesn't want any uh, suggestion that there was a... dampening of the vote because of a lack of vote center in Lancaster. He's a Garcia supporter. He said he wants Garcia to win. But he turned around after my interview and asked the registrar to open an extra vote center in his district, in his city. And the registrar complied on Friday, announced that they would do that. Um, But over the weekend, that caused quite a kerfuffle. There were um, tweets from the White House saying that the election is rigged, because of this and the Garcia campaign feels that this is some last minute political shenanigans that are inappropriate.
0: All right. Libby, thank you so much. We appreciate your giving us the update, and we'll look forward to your coverage tomorrow on Election Day for that 25th Congressional District Special Election, and of course when we get the result. But it may be so close, we may not have a result for many, many days down the road with the uh, vote-by-mail ballots uh, needing to be counted well after the polls close. KPCC politics reporter Libby Denkman with us. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Air Talk. We leave you with the late little Richard Pennyman, who died at the age of 87 Saturday, of bone cancer and what was his first big hit. Governor Newsom's news conference coming right up.